This morning we're reading from Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, to chapter 19, verse 29. Then the men sent out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you sweep them away the place and not spare it for the city, for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, well, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened breads, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, all the pe people to the last man surrounded the house, and he called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into his house with them and shut the door. And he struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, daughters, sons, or daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, for because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord's, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he has seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife at him outside by the hands, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have found me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it, has, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favour also, so that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the grounds. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and set Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Thank you, Kat. Please do keep that passage open in front of you. Um, we're on page uh, 13 of the Church Bible, if you've closed it. Um, and I do just want to say right up front and acknowledge, not only was that reading a long reading, um, it, it's also a disturbing one in a number of ways. There's the horrifying behavior of the people of Sodom. There's Lot's sickening mention of his daughters. And there's the sobering, the terrifying judgment of God falling on the city. And so I do want to say, particularly if you're visiting church this morning, I realize you, you may be thinking, what have I come to? I mean, what, what kind of place is this? And um, when we were having the baptism of, of Hannah and, and many family were visiting, I guess they were thinking, why did you choose this passage of all passages for this morning in a baptism service? Actually, the fundamental answer is we didn't choose this passage in the sense that we pick which passage we want to speak about and what our favorite topic is. One of our convictions as a church family is that the whole Bible is a good God's good message to us. Every page good for us. And so as we study and teach the Bible um, each week, we, we try really hard not to sit over the 
God's word, but under it, under the authority of God. We don't sit in judgment over which bits of the Bible should be heard today, but rather we, we listen to them as they come. We go kind of passage by passage in order through books. And we do that because if we don't do that, well, if we're only willing to listen to God when he agrees with us, we'll never be changed. Our cultural blind spots, our personal blind spots will never be challenged. And actually, we'll refashion God into our image. The Bible's word for that is we'll make an idol, a God who's just a big version of us. So here we are in Genesis 18 and 19, and there'll be a number of ways, I think, in which it sobers us and challenges us. Um, So let me pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is good and true, and we recognize we are not often. And so we pray that by your word, you would this morning be shaping us and changing us and giving us humble hearts to listen to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Genesis 18. We had a couple of weeks off for half term, um, but basically, uh, three weeks ago, we were in the first half of Genesis 18, uh, which was a really good piece of news. And now we're in the second half of Genesis 18 and into 19, which is a really sobering piece of news. Um, So in Genesis 18, if you look at verse 1, God has turned up in person to Abraham's tent. He's turned up with two angels alongside him. Um, And he's turned up in chapter 18 to announce two things that he's going to do. He's revealing two things that are about to happen. So before half term, um, we saw the wonderful news of a miracle baby that was going to be born in a year's time. In one year, Abraham, I will give you Isaac. And that was an amazing thing. It was amazing news because Abraham was so old. He was as good as dead. Um, uh, Sarah was also old and unable to have children. And God says, well, actually, I'm going to show you that I can bring life where there's currently death. I can reverse the curse on this fallen world. I can bring hope in the face of the grave. Amazing news. It was almost too good to be true, actually, that both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the idea. How can that be possible? It's not even medically possible. But that was only the first thing God had to reveal in Genesis 18 to Abraham. And from verse 16 onwards, he reveals another thing, a second piece of news, and news that this time is very sobering, serious. The news this time is not about a year's time. It's actually going to be about one day's time from now, where God's final judgment is going to fall on the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, God's final judgment is the topic that unites the whole reading we heard. Um, in, in verses 16 to 33, we get a kind of discussion of the principles on which God's final judgment will come. Is it fair? And then in chapter 19, the camera goes into the town. We follow the two angels into this city to see how bad things actually were before the back half of chapter 19 shows God's judgment falling. It is sobering stuff. I mean, this isn't going to be the cheeriest of mornings. Though actually, strikingly, just like last time, two characters are going to laugh at the news. I wonder if you noticed that as we went through. Chapter 19, verse 13 and 14. Just have a look down with me. Um, I'll pick it up from verse 13. About to decide what's going to happen. Um, The angels say to to, um, Lot, we are about to destroy this place 
because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But here it is. He seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting, joking. They laughed at the idea that God would bring final judgment in the world they were living. Striking that, isn't it? Last time, Abraham and Sarah laughed because it was too good to be true. I mean, you can't be serious. It's not even medically possible. These two men laughed because, well, I guess they thought, well, that's just too fanciful to be true. That God's going to bring judgment on our town. I mean, you're just trying to scare me, Lot. You can't seriously believe that stuff, can you? I mean, are you some kind of religious nutter? The world's going to end. I'm going to be judged. I don't think so. Everyone can live how they want. I mean, whatever makes you happy. What does God care? When we die, we rot. The world just goes round and round and normal. The sun will rise tomorrow like it always has. I mean, this idea of a God of kind of fire and brimstone is absolutely ridiculous. You're some kind of medieval monk. The topic this morning, it's no laughing matter. This is a serious and sober warning of what will ultimately happen when people keep rejecting God their creator and keep rejecting his righteous standards of how to behave and keep mistreating people because of that and mistreating his world and mistreating him. And it's not just me saying that this story is relevant to our world today. Uh, the Bible actually keeps saying that over and over again. Um, you'll see on the, on the outline, I've put a box of references in the Bible that look back to this event. And every one of those references looks back to the event as a warning for the kind of contemporary audience. Sometimes they're talking to God's people, be warned, that, that kind of, um, take that seriously. Sometimes they're talking to the nations, be warned. But the most striking of all is when Jesus teaches on this passage. So just keep a finger in Genesis 18. We'll come back there. But turn with me to Luke 17. Um, Luke 17, which is on page 877. On the Church Bibles, page 877, Luke 17. And here we're going to see Jesus make the connection to the present day um, He's been asked when, when um, his kingdom's going to come. So when, when's he going to come back and return and bring justice and judgment uh, against God's enemies? When's he going to bring peace on the earth? Um, and Jesus picks up and describes what the day will be like in verse 26, when he returns. The Son of Man is a name for him. So this is Jesus describing the day when he returns. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That was Genesis 6 to 9 that he was preaching there. And now Jesus preaches from Genesis 18 and 19 and this is what he says. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. 
so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Do you see the point Jesus is making? The application he draws from this passage, the most loving man who has ever lived, says, be warned by this passage. This is what it will be like in the future for the whole world, not just that one wicked city. This is a warning example. Like the flood, it will be sudden, it will be universal, destructive. Like Sodom, it will be sudden, unexpected, destructive. And that just makes this morning even more sobering, doesn't it? Suddenly, we're not just reading a story about a long time ago in a galaxy far away. No, this is about our world today. That's how Jesus himself applies it. And actually how Peter in 2 Peter applies it, and how Jude in Jude applies it. Learn the lesson from Sodom. Don't laugh off the idea that God would judge, cataclysmically judge. Don't think he's having a laugh. Now, we're going to see three things about God's judgment this morning. Again, you can see them on the handout. Just to, just to encourage you, the first two are longer. So if you feel like it's taking a long time, the, the last two will do much more quickly. Um, and the first point is, is, in some ways, the most important to get our heads around. God's final judgment is just. That, I think, is what chapter 18 is all about, uh, the second half of chapter 18. God's final judgment is just. Now, I'm calling it final judgment because that's what it is for Sodom. This is not a warning shot across the bow. This is not God saying, careful, next time you're on your final warning. No, this is total destruction. It's enough is enough. The moment when God says enough is enough. And I think in some ways that's what can make it hard for us to get our heads around it or our hearts around it. Like, does it really need to be this severe God, your judgment? Does it need to be total destruction, the extinction of the whole town, every person? I mean, what about the good people? What about the innocent folk in the town? Is, is it fair what you're doing? Well, this very passage was written to help us grapple with those questions. And so verses 16 to 33, first point, God's final judgment is just. And particularly in the sense that he will not punish righteous people. He will not indiscriminately sweep away good people and bad people in some kind of fit of rage or flying off the handle. No, rather, God's judgment will be considered, evidence-based, proportionate, responsive. It will fit the crime. He doesn't judge innocent victims. To see that, we need to dive into the conversation with Abraham. So um, track through with me. Verses 16 and 17. Um, it's clear that God doesn't want to hide what he's about to do from Abraham. He wants Abraham to know about it. Uh, he wanted him to know the good news, Isaac will be born in a year. Now he wants him to know the sobering news, Sodom is about to fall. I to say, he doesn't just say that uh, kind of there's 24 hours left, it's definitely going to happen. No, just look at verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, do you see the point being made about God's judgment here? It's important to realize, as my mic just died, I think my, my batteries may have just died. Can you put me on, on the lectern mic? Sorry. The front rows can probably still hear me. There we go. Um, okay, so this is important. God already knows what's going on in Sodom. He knows everything. 
He knows, in fact, he says, their sin is very grave. He already knows that. But he's speaking this way for Abraham's benefit and for our benefit. All through this chapter, actually, he's accommodating himself to us. He appears as a man. Uh, he talks uh, face-to-face with Abraham. And here he's, he's, he's describing going down to do a final last inspection. He's going to do a double check because he's heard the outcries. He's heard the cries for justice. He's heard the cries of the victims. And he's saying, look, Abraham, I'm about to bring final judgment. But when I do, it's not going to be a guess. It's not going to be a generalization. I'm not going to rely on secondhand reports. No, my judgment is going to be carefully considered, fully informed, evidence-based. Are things in Sodom really as bad as they say? And if not, I will know. But of course, things are that bad. We're going to see that and feel that in chapter 19 when the camera does follow the angels to spend a night in Sodom and see what actually goes on. At this point, I need to address whether God's judgment really is a good thing in this world. I think sometimes we can struggle with the idea of a God of judgment. I think even as Christians, we can struggle about it. The idea that that hell would be a real place and that real people would go there. And I can struggle to get my my heart around the, the scale of it and the severity of it. But actually, when you stop to think about the alternatives, what are the alternatives to God judging human wickedness? Well, they would be far worse. If there were no consequences for wrongful human actions, or if there were no serious consequences for wrongful human actions, well then, our behaviour becomes meaningless and victims become valueless. And God, well, he's either powerless to stop it, to do anything, or worse than that, he could do something and he doesn't. An indifferent moral monster. And actually, deep down, I think we know this. I think our culture knows this deep down. One of, one of the features of our the time we're living in is, is actually an increasing sense of moral outrage about various things. And some of them are right. Where is the God of justice when Jimmy Savile gets away with horrendous crimes over many years, dies before being held accountable? Where is the God of justice as the Me Too mo- movement reveals how widespread the exploitation of women is across the globe. Where is the God of justice as as violent aggressors attack civilians in multiple places over the planet? We can see what's going on, can't he? We care about what's going on, doesn't he? We care about victims of injustice. So where is the God of justice? Well, this event of Sodom, just like Noah's flood in Genesis 6-9, to it sits in the Bible as a marker in history that God will not just sit by endlessly as if he's uninterested or unaware or indifferent to the wrong behavior of human beings towards one another and towards him. Sodom's like a marker in the sand to say he is far more aware than we are and far more passionately cares about right and wrong than we do. In fact, it's it's precisely because our own moral compasses are bent out of shape by our own compromises that we're often not nearly as outraged as he is 
we often think he's overreacting. It says a lot about us. And so this in the Bible says he won't just sit by. He will bring final judgment. As Jesus himself said, it will be global in the end. I mean, he is patient. He's, he's giving Sodom one more night. He's going to check it for himself. In Genesis 15, he said to Abraham that he's giving the land of Canaan 400 more years before the sin of the Amorites is so bad that judgment should fall. But make no mistake, his delay should not be mistaken for indifference. His judgment will fall. That's our first point. God's final judgment is just. And in some ways, verses 20 and 21 make the point. Look, it will be just, Abraham. I'm, I'm going to check. And yet, strangely, we don't jump straight to chapter 19, but we, we actually hear what is an extraordinary conversation between Abraham and God. Because having announced his plan, the creator of the universe allows a Q&A. Like he submits himself to, to, to questioning. Almost like he puts himself in the dock. Abraham, you got any questions about that? Any concerns about what I'm doing? It's an extraordinary moment. And Abraham does have a question. His question is about God's justice. He raises the question whether it would be just to wipe out a city like this if there are righteous people there. Just look at verse, how, verse 23 puts it. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Striking that, because that actually engages the question we have today about God's judgment. I mean, yeah, there might be, we might think there are some moral monsters that surely deserve some kind of judgment, some kind of hell, the, the Hitlers of the world, some bad apples. But what about the good people? What about the nice people? Surely God, if he's just, wouldn't send everyone who doesn't accept forgiveness in Jesus to hell. I mean, surely he won't get rid of the righteous like that. Abraham's asking that question. He does it through numbers. Um, uh, one commentary estimates a, a, a city like uh, Sodom, was, it's like a, a small town in our terms in the ancient Near East, so maybe 100 people were there, something like that. Uh, and the question is, okay, 50 people. So if half the city is righteous, would you just wipe it all away? For the righteous to death with the wicked, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's a key question for this passage. Will God be just in his judgment? And as the chapter goes on, we work down through the numbers. Um, and by the end, he's down to 10, verse 32. Yes, Abraham, for the sake of 10 people, I would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The point being, my judgment will be just. I'm not going to destroy an innocent town. I wouldn't even destroy it if there were 10 righteous people. Now, in, in one sense, Abraham is, is concerned for his nephew Lot, who's in the town, and, and his family, Actually, he doesn't mention Lot specifically, and, and there's, there's fewer than 10, actually, in, in Lot's household. So I don't think it's just about him. I think it's about this big issue. God, will you be just to bring final judgment? And that's our point. God's judge, final judgment is, for, is just. That's our first point. And so we head into chapter 19 for our second point, wondering if the angels will find even 10 righteous people. Now, as they enter, and this is into point two, as they enter, 
immediately on their entry, they meet Lot. Um, now, Lot is a complicated character in the whole of Genesis and in this chapter. Um, Peter, later in 2 Peter, calls him righteous, and he is a member of Abraham's family, and yet he does some awful things. So initially, he's presented positively. So at the start of chapter 19, like Abraham at the start of chapter 18, he greets the angels. He bows to them. Abraham did all these things. He offers hospitality at his home. He, at this point, is acting rightly. We'd think, oh, okay, here's a member of God's people, Abraham's family. Maybe there is one righteous person in Sodom. Actually, even in these opening verses, there's a note of foreboding in the air. When the angels say in verse 2 that they plan to stay in the town square, Lot urges them strongly that they can't do that. Why is he saying that? Well, because he knows Sodom town centre is not a safe place to be at night. Like a lot of town centres, actually, today. He's aware of how bad Sodom is. He wants to protect his guests, but he can't. Verse 4. The men of Sodom assemble around the house. Now, I want us to notice how verse 4 describes it. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. You see what's being stressed in verse 4. We came into this chapter with the question, well, will we find ten righteous people? But the reality is that there was someone from every household there that night. The men, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, what are they coming to do? Here, the Bible describes what is going on with its usual careful, measured, non-graphic description. But as we see consistently in Genesis... The Bible does describe what actually happens in this world, sin in all its darkest colors. And we need to be clear what the men are intending to do and what's wrong with it. So in verse 5, when they call to Lot that they want to know these men, bring them out that we might know them. That word know is repeatedly used in Genesis to speak of sexual intercourse. So Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So the violent gang, they're not just wanting to find out who the visitors are. And some people claim that or argue that, saying there's nothing sexual going on, they're just curious about the visitors. No. Actually, the reality is they are, to a man, as a gang, threatening sexual violence on these defensive, defenseless visitors. That's how Lot understands what they're saying in verses 6 and 7. It's the reason he didn't let them stay in the town square in the first place. This is not a one-off. And actually at first, so we'll get to verse 8, which is horrific, but at first, Lot bravely goes out to try and talk them down. He shuts the door behind them. He knows there's a threat. And verse 7, it's clear what he makes of the proposal. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. In what sense is this a wicked act? What's wrong with what they're saying? I think it's important to realize that biblically this is wrong for three reasons. Although in our culture, only one of those reasons, more widely, only one of those reasons would be taken seriously. 
God takes all three seriously, I think. Firstly, why is this wrong? Well, it's the absolute opposite of showing hospitality to strangers. So both Abraham and Lot demonstrate the love of neighbor and the the care of the stranger and the visitor, protecting those who are traveling through. But Sodom gave these men no warm welcome at the gates, and now quite the opposite. Now, in the individualistic West, in our culture, we think, well, what's the big deal with that? But actually, the ethical requirement biblically, what God cares about, is to provide for and protect one's guests. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one part of why this is shocking, though we don't really feel it. Secondly, again, biblically, from Genesis more widely and the rest of the Bible, what they're proposing is wrong because they're proposing homosexual, same-sex activity, which is a distortion of God's plan for sex in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God established at creation that the one place for sex is between one man and one woman, back to when he's asked about sexual... And that's the consistent teaching of the Bible. That's where Jesus goes back to when he's asked about sexual ethics. But the reality is, since Genesis 3, since the fall, when we turned against God, humans have been ripping up God's plan for sexuality and writing our own story in the arena of sexual ethics. And it's happened in more than one way already in Genesis. Uh, in chapter 4, there was polygamy, Violent Lamech decided that one man and one woman wasn't enough for him. He took another wife, tearing up God's pattern. In Genesis 6, uh, there was sexual relations between humans and angels ripping up God's pattern. At the end of this chapter, we're going to see the first example of incest ripping up God's pattern. But here, the particular distortion is homosexual um, sexual activity. That's what they're proposing. I'm aware this is a massive area of debate and discussion in our culture. Um, There's a huge campaign in our schools and our politics, sometimes in our employment contexts, to say you're not even allowed to talk about this, let alone believe it and live like it. We are to love people, whatever their sexual orientation. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I'm aware that this will be something that some of us struggle with personally, and I'd encourage you to speak to someone about that. Uh, as with all of us, uh, the, the Bible's um, pattern for sexuality is something that doesn't come naturally. But actually, if, even if our culture has closed its ears to the Bible's teaching on hospitality and on homosexual practice, there is actually one area in this passage that our culture, our conscience is still in tune with the Bible. In fact, it's a, a good aspect of our culture that this third aspect of why this is in Lot's description a wickedness a wicked act and that is this threat of violence or non-consensual sex to put it really bluntly and this is this is um, the last thing I'll say on this on describing what's going on to put it bluntly the entire town of Sodom to a man are planning non-consensual gang rape of these visitors even with our values that have drifted so far from God's, we recognize that as sickening, wicked. We, in fact, this is, this is what causes the outcries for justice. Where is the God of justice when this is happening? As Lot says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. But the reality is Lot can't stop this. 
He's powerless to. In fact, worse than that, verse 7, he tries to stop it. Verse 8, he, he, he makes a horrible proposal. Um, so some people claim that the, the, his daughters may not be at home. Uh, they may be elsewhere in the city. This may be a bluff. But actually, regardless of that, it's a horrible thing to say. He actually sounds more like a man of Sodom here than the family of Abraham. One commentary helpfully puts it like this. This was a shocking, cowardly, and inexcusable act, even if he intended it just as a bluff or expected the offer to be rejected. The point being, far from being able to stop the wickedness, Lot is becoming compromised in it that night. And actually, these, these men of Sodom won't be stopped. Verse 9, just listen to their attitude. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge... Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. You think you can judge us? You think you can stop us? At which point, that question we had hanging over from chapter 18. What if there are ten righteous people in Sodom? Would you sweep it all away? Well, no. But there aren't ten righteous people in Sodom. They were all there that night, one from every household. And actually, just pleading or warning isn't going to be enough. Lot can't put a stop to it. He's not their judge. Both he actually doesn't have the moral authority to do it. He's compromised himself. But also he's powerless to stop them. That's our second point. God's final judgment is warranted. It was one thing hearing in principle, chapter 18, that this is just. It's responsive to what's actually going on. Well, as we actually spend a night in Sodom, and this is the last night that Sodom ever had, we feel how awful what's going on is. God said he'd never punish innocent people. These people are not innocent. Now, this night was not the only guilt of Sodom. When Ezekiel looks back uh, on um, what happened in Sodom, he actually says there are a number of things they did wrong. This was the guilt of Sodom. I'm quoting from Ezekiel 16. Um, She had uh, pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy, and was haughty before me and did an abomination. The point being, God's final judgment was warranted here. Where is the God of justice? Don't you care about the victims? Yes, actually. Far more than we do. Far more. Tomorrow morning, it's all over. That's the last night we'll do. We'll have of that. Which brings us to our third point, and I will be more brief with these last two points. Our third observation about God's final judgment from this example town is that God's warning of final judgment is urgent. God's warning of final judgment is urgent. And at this point, we start to come into today and why this is an important passage to understand for ourselves. You can see the urgency from verse 12 onwards. Um, So that the the angels say to Lot, "You you need to gather your family from around the city. We're reminded why, verse 13, we're about to destroy this place. The outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And then verse 14, Lot went out, said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, 
Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. What's striking here is the contrast between the urgency of the warning. Twice we hear, get up, get up. You need to move now. This is coming. No time to waste. The urgency of the warning and the complacency of the responses. <laughs> nah, you, have no, you must be having a laugh. You can't be serious. I've got plans today. I'm, I'm going to work. I was going to play FIFA with my mates. Don't go all religious, religious nutcase on us lot. I mean, come on, what a joke. But not just the laughter, but Lot himself lingers. It's hard to believe this. We'll think more about this next time as we think about Lot and his, his wife. This idea that even having seen the angels and the blindness they brought on the crowd, he still is tempted to linger. That's our third point. God's judgment is urgent. But finally, and our closing note is a note of good news. God's mercy saves Abraham's family from final judgment. As we draw to a close, I want us to notice how and why Lot and his family actually escape from this fire and sulfur that God rained from heaven. Now, we don't actually know what happened um, Practically speaking, we don't know, did, did God use seismic activity? Was there a volcanic eruption kind of throwing um, molten lava up and then it came down? The area was full of bitumen pits. Or was it meteors kind of raining from space at that moment? Or was it just a straight miracle with no natural means? We, we don't know how he did it, but verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So much so actually when Abraham in verse 26 looks down on the valley before him, he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. This was a, a total, a cataclysmic destruction. When the creator himself acts in final judgment, like we saw in Noah's flood with water, and now in Sodom's fate with fire, nothing can stop him. Nothing can withstand him. But of course, as Abraham looks through the smoke and the fire and rubble, there is one family escaping. Lot and his daughters do survive. Why? Well, not because they were perfect people. We've already seen that today and we'll see much more next week. No, verse 29, Lot survived because God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot survived because God saved him. God saved him because he was connected to Abraham. He was in Abraham's family. Just look at back at verse 16 and how it actually happens it's striking, it's so clear. It wasn't because Lot was better than the others. Verse 16, Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Why? The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. That's our closing point. God's mercy saves Abraham's family from final judgment. And in lots of ways, this is the story of the whole Bible in a nutshell. I think basically the Bible has two big bits of news. The two big bits of news actually in uh, Genesis 18. 
the one bit of deeply sobering news that there is a day of final judgment coming. And actually, we're all going to be found on the wrong side of it, just standing by ourselves. And because God cares about people, about victims, about right and wrong, it will be more fearsome than we can imagine. Our cries of justice are nothing compared to the righteous, consuming fire of God's holiness. That, that's the sobering piece of news that the Bible says again and again. But there's one other piece of news, one other announcement, here in Genesis 18 and through the Bible as a whole, that there is one family where you can be safe. In fact, there's one son through whom blessing will come. Here in Genesis 18, it's Isaac, this promised, miraculous baby. But Isaac is just a shadow of the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, who when he warned people about Genesis 19, was on his way to the cross to take God's judgment on our behalf and to offer safety and peace, to offer mercy for all who trust in him. And ever since that day, he has been grabbing people by the hand and saying, come out. Got to go. You've got to trust me. Judgment is coming and I am the safe place. Now, if you've never really considered that, if you've never realized, really realized what Christians believe about Jesus, that he's not just a nice to have, but essential for safety, I'd love, you, I'd love to chat to you. I'd love you to ask, answer questions you have or talk to someone who's come, brought you today. And for those of us who are Christians, who have experienced God's mercy grabbing us by the hand, my encouragement to us would be to not look with self-righteousness on Sodom or even on Lot in a kind of how awful they were, but actually to realize that but for God's mercy, grabbing us by the hand... But for the grace of God, I'd be facing that God unforgiven. Let me close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We pray that you'd help us to trust that today. In Jesus' name, amen.